This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. And if you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 132 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, um, I have had another card filled week. I can't wait to share some of that with you. I suppose if you listen to this show on a regular basis, that shouldn't really be a big shocker. And uh, by the way, thanks to those of you that are regulars. And if this is your first time, welcome. So here's a quick rundown for today. I'm going to talk about a card show that I set up at this weekend. Uh, The biggest one I've set up at to date. I've got some mail that I'd like to share. And then I have a fun conversation I recorded with a collector and a graphic designer named Nick. And some of you might know him from his Instagram account, at Basketballers, B-A-W-L-E-R-S. If not, you'll be more familiar with him soon. So provided, you know, that you stay tuned for that, which I trust that you will. All right, so this past weekend, I went to the Tampa Collectors Con. I figure some of you have seen some coverage of that on social media by now. I'll circle back around to that in a few moments. But this was a three-day show. It was a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday. And I was only able to set up on the last two days. Now, um, I've talked about it before. The show experience is completely different depending on what side of the table you're on. The last couple shows that I had been to, I was a buyer, which allowed me to dig more. I like that. But, um, you know, I like the being on the other side too because I like making deals. I like moving up to different cards you know I like seeing what can comes to my table throughout the weekend so um, this time I set up with a friend and Saturday was busy enough you know I didn't get a roam around and I didn't get a dig um, like I wanted to you know in a way that's a good thing because it means that you're moving inventory and I did really well on cheap you know one to five dollar inserts in parallels from the 90s um, the two times that I managed to get away from the table incidentally enough um, I picked up some 90s stuff, which is not always all that common for me. I got a Kevin Garnett 1999-2000 Black Diamond Final Cut Parallel number to 100. And then I got a 97-98 Hakeem Olajuwon Luminescent, which both cost me less than the price of a tank of gas combined, by the way. So that was pretty nice. Now, um, day two was a lot slower And, um, you know, that could, you know, a lot of people would see that as a bad thing from a dealer's perspective, but I try to make it good. I I was able to walk around more. I was able to dig. I was able to hit a few dollar boxes. I was able to meet up with people that I've dealt with before. 
One of them was Zach, a.k.a. BDRR, who you heard on this show before. He gave me a great deal on some Pacers 2012 silver prisms that I needed for my binder, so that was nice. And then at the end of the day, I picked up a pretty big card for my collection, a baseball card, which is kind of strange, but it's a dual relic of Barry Bonds and Ted Williams. And the uh, Barry Bonds was a piece of a base from the 2001 All-Star game. And the Ted Williams was a nice patch from a game-worn Red Sox jersey. And both of those pieces seem pretty significant to me. So I I like the fact that they're on the same card. Um, Overall, though, it was a pretty enjoyable show. Of course, there was an abundance of shiny stuff. But I got a chance to see some monster cards uh, and some just some cool um, items in general that I wouldn't normally see. I know there was a video of a shirtless breaker um, screaming and a guy chugging a beer and spilling it all over the place. I know that was circulating social media. I had at least a handful of you that sent it to me. Um, I guess I stayed away from all of that while I was there because I can assure you that not every person there acted like a true Florida man. And my experience was good. So, um, you know, if, if you want to hear even more about it, feel free to check out my YouTube. I made a little recap video that shows some of the stuff I just described and then even more. Okay, on to the mail. I got a handful of packages in the mail over the last week or so, but um, I'm only going to talk about two cards today, and both of those are Pacers cards. The first one was a 2019-2020 Immaculate Acetate Auto Patch of Malcolm Brogdon, number to 25. And it was a purchase from Probstein. And some of you saw this on my Instagram already, but they shipped me a $40 card in a penny sleeve with no top loader. And, um, you know, I know, you know, $40, I, I act like that's a, a big card. And, and for some people that is, and $40 is still, you know, it, it's a pretty decent amount for me to spend on a card. I buy a lot of little stuff. Um, it's not going to make or break me, but the fact that they, they can't top load a $40 card is kind of ridiculous. It's the principle of the whole thing. And then on top of that, there was a big scratch on the surface. So I'm not sure if the scratch was from the lazy shipping or if it was already like that and not disclosed in the lazy description. But anyway, I'm keeping this one because it was the fifth and final card I needed to have all the pacers from this set. I've talked about the others on here before. Danny Granger, Miles Turner, Goga, and Aaron Holiday. Um, a handful of the 25 Malcolms have showed up in the past. I always expected them to drop in price over time, so I was trying to be patient and wait them out. They didn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, $40 you know, isn't really all that bad, especially in 2021. I think I'd offered $45 on one of them that's on eBay right now. So um, you know, I got it for a little cheaper than I thought I would. Uh, and maybe at some point over the next week, I'll even take all five of them out and take a group picture. Maybe. That would, however, involve some digging, so we'll see. Um, And then the second card I picked up is a 2014-2015 Panini Court Kings Performance Art Patch of George Hill. Here are some of the things this card has going for it. Number one, it's Court Kings, so it's got that canvas-like surface. I've always liked that. Um, Two, it has a great action photo. Can't go wrong with that. An in-game photo. Number three, it has a pretty nice, chunky three-color patch. So those are all good. 
But the main reason that I wanted this card is because it's game dated. This particular patch came from a November 2013 game against the Knicks in the garden. And it talks about that on there. That's where the picture's from. It's got the date on there and everything. So that's really cool. And you know what? I'm not sure if we're going to see much more of that kind of stuff from Panini in the future. They've already lessened up on it quite a bit. And um, it's funny to me when people lately have said they think Panini's going to finish the rest of this basketball license with integrity and really step things up and go out with a bang. And, and I'm thinking, have you not been paying attention to the last year of products? And it's not even a COVID thing at this point. You know, the use of unworn holiday sweaters in Select pretty much solidified that for me. So all of that is to say I let this card sit on eBay for a while because I felt the price was a bit too high. But as more and more time passes and more and more new releases hit the market, all of that continues to shape my perspective. I really like this card, and what was once an overpay might in fact now be a fair value after all. Alright, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer, played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum Podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, joining me today is someone that I haven't had a, a lot of interactions with yet, but I'm excited to get to know him more. You might know him from Instagram, where he posts under the handle at Basketballers, and that's B-A-W-L-E-R-S. He's also posted a little on Blowout under the same name. He made an incredible thread this week that got buried and most certainly shouldn't have. I'm, I'm hoping that maybe after this episode, some people will go back and give it a look. We'll talk more about that in a bit, though. Nick, how's it going? It's going great. Enjoying the long weekend. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I, I'm definitely glad you can be on here. We've got a, a number of things that we're going to dig into today. Now, usually when I have someone on here, I know a little bit about their collecting history. Uh, when you post, it seems like it's all vintage stuff. And, um, you know, so I feel like we connect there, but I, I really have no clue how you got to that point. I don't know a lot about you. So I'd love if you could start today by sharing your hobby history for myself and then also for the listeners. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. So yeah, I, uh, my collecting days began in New York City in the 1990s when I was growing up. And at this time, both of my parents were actually in the uh, clothing design and manufacturing business. And um, it's an unlikely start, but one of my uh, dad's suppliers for these giant bolts of fabric that he would get for his his business was this place called the Fabric Warehouse in New York City and Lower Manhattan. And this was at the time where there were still these kind of funky shops uh, down by Canal Street. And I'm too young. I was too young to remember the actual name of the guy who ran it. But uh, there was this guy who ran this little side hustle of repacking cards into these sleeves. And I remember he would put about maybe 20 or 30 cards per sleeve in there. 
and he would sell them for just a dollar, a dollar per sleeve. And I remember at the top of the sleeves, there would always be like, you know, maybe like a, a superstar, like maybe like a Michael Jordan card, or there would be, um, you know, some kind of insert card, right? And uh, each time my dad went to the fabric warehouse, I remember he would come back with like a couple, couple of these sleeves of cards. And that was always a really exciting day for me because at the time I was already sort of an emerging New York Knicks fan uh, growing up in the New York area. And um, to see some of my favorite basketball players represented on cards was the coolest thing. Um, I remember, you know, I was definitely a big Patrick Ewing collector and uh, also it was like the John Starks era. Okay, so we're enemies here. <laughs> well, I've moved a lot since then. So, you know, maybe my tastes have moved on as well. But so, yeah, slowly but surely, I began amassing all these all these 90s cards. And, um, you know, sort of fast forward to middle and high school. And I start earning a little bit of my own money. And by then, I start basically spending every dollar I have, for better or worse, on um, either wax packs from my local hobby stores or at that point, I had figured out how to create an eBay account and or work with my dad to get stuff off eBay. And I was getting some uh, higher value cards as well. Higher value relatively, you know, realistically, probably 15 or 20 bucks at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, by the time I'm in high school, I remember my entire closet, rather than being filled with clothes, I had turned into this sort of shrine to basketball cards. Uh, and it drove my mom crazy because I didn't really have space for any of my, my clothes and my practical things. But um, I would just have, you know, all of my favorite cards up in, um, you know, hard shell cases up on the wall. And I would just rotate these sort of different exhibits of my favorite cards at the time. And of course, also stored a ton of binders in there. And it just kind of took over. And uh, at some point I went to college and decided to sort of shelve, shelve the hobby for the time being. Um, and uh, unfortunately the cards sort of went back into um, some cardboard boxes and were stashed with my, my family for uh, realistically the last 15 or so years. And um, it took a global pandemic for me to say, you know, I kind of missed that hobby. I need something new to do during, during the quarantine. Uh, I wonder if I can get my dad to ship out the boxes. Now I'm living in California. so. He, uh, he shipped me what ended up being five boxes of, of cards and uh, it cost more than I'd like to admit, but it was all worth it. And um, I started dusting off these old cards and uh, sort of reorganizing a lot of the loose ones. And next thing you know, I'm just sort of deep back into the hobby as, as strong as ever. So that's uh, interesting to me because so it seems like you have 90s background. And I'll be honest, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know your age or you know, even an age range when we started Fair chatting. Um, and I'm seeing all these vintage cards. So, you know, I'm like, I don't know how old this guy is here. So I'm kind of surprised you got the 90s, uh, the 90s background, but everything that I've seen from you has been two decades prior to that. Um, yeah. So explain that for me a little bit. Sure, sure. So um as I was dusting off my old cards, I remember most of the cards that I had were pretty contemporary to the 90s, but I had a few old cards from the, the 70s era as well, including like a Dr. J card in the mix and like a Pistol Pete. And I always, I always liked those, but I don't think it was until I like reopened my cards that I was like, these are the officially coolest cards I've ever seen in my life. Like, um, 
you know, I loved the, I loved the design. I loved just like the absurdist colors and everything about them. And I was like, you know, I think I want to start focusing on collecting 1970s cards. Actually, these are my favorite cards and I should collect what I love. So I started ordering these kind of cheap lots of old, you know, usually like low grade cards off eBay. Uh, and it would be kind of a random mix of things, but I started putting together um, more and more cards from especially the 1971, 72 and 74 top sets, mm-hmm. which are some of my favorites. And um, yeah, you skipped 73, which is ugly. I hate 73 and 75. 73 is pretty ugly. And, and by the time you're you're approaching the 80s, there's some rough ones in there as well. But uh, those are definitely some of my favorites. And, um, you know, I was like, I was like, I got to do something with these. Um, and uh, that's actually what led me to my uh, Instagram uh, hobby recently. Okay, so yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that Instagram account here. That's a good segue. Uh, the majority of my listeners know that, hey, I'm into this 7273 set. You know, I spent nine years getting it signed. I've, I've given all those stories already. I'm not going to rehash all that. But um, at some point in the last year, I think it was around March. So that makes sense with the, the, the whole pandemic and everything. Your Instagram account popped up with a lot of cards from that era. And um, each post had some sort of a write up or a wild story. And um, I had lots of people sending me this stuff. Oh my God, is this true? Is this story true? And I'm like, you know, well, I'm pretty sure that one's fictional. I'm pretty sure, you know, and I, but I, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's believable because of how wild the era was, especially if you've read, you know, like the ABA book, Loose Balls and, and read some of the stuff that went on in there. So as I mentioned in the intro, your handle is at basketballers. And your bio reads as follows. It says an alternative history to the forgotten basketball players of the 1970s for basketball fans, card collectors, designers, and short shorts enthusiasts. And now I fit into a couple of those categories. I'll let you guys figure out which ones, but um, you know what, tell me a little bit more then what was the inspiration behind this account and, and what exactly are you looking to accomplish here? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think you, you sort of, um, nailed a couple of the things that I was going for here. One of the things that I love about the 1970s era is just all the lore and myth from that era. And um, I actually picked up a copy of that book, uh, Loose Falls as well recently, which has been pretty inspirational for for some of the the posts that I'm creating on on that account. And what I love is that a lot of the stuff is almost impossible to prove or disprove. It's just sort of these legends and myths that maybe five or six players have shared by word of mouth and each person has a slightly different take on it and in this case I would say whether it's real or not doesn't hurt anybody I think it's just the concept that it could have happened that's really beautiful and exciting so I said why not sort of run with this concept of the like absurdist 70s era and just take it even a step further and just sort of let my imagination go wild and in some cases the posts are actually based in historical information like in her little snippets from loose balls for instance and in other cases it's just stuff that i totally made up up off the cusp that you know i might have looked at a card and a player just has a really crazy particular look that feels like it tells a story and i'll i'll sort of lean into that um and uh i really got going with this as my favorite pandemic hobby i think it's a great way to sort of release some creative energy out into the world and um take like a closer look at just my favorite basketball cards and 
you know, I'm not collecting especially high grade gem mint cards or anything. A lot of them have these funky creases and things that give them even more character. So um, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with it and uh, slowly but surely building a following. I like when people can't honestly tell what's real or not, you know, I'm, I'm not lying to anybody and trying to claim that it's it's actually uh, historical evidence. To, to yeah, I, it, I had a number of people <laughs> that were kind of trying to use me to fact check it. And I'm like, look, <laughs> I'm like, look, you know, you can look some of this stuff up. And then you get a guy like John Brisker. It's like, you know what? John Brisker did bring guns into the locker room. They did make a cover with him uh, with guns with the Anaheim Amigos on one of the programs. He did go to Uganda and disappear. You know, like there's a lot of it's things unreal. about him that, um, <laughs> you know, sound made up. And it's like, no, this guy's story is real. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of hard to, to find that line and know what's true and what's not. Um, but just like you said, you're, you're not doing anything that's meant to hurt anyone. So keep that that's in right. mind. You know, even, even people that maybe don't like that, just keep that in mind. You're not trying to hurt anyone. Nothing you're That's doing right. Here. I put alternative history in quotes there too to just sort of emphasize the alternative aspect of it. It's not right. really, uh, it's my own take on history. Now, I think you've mentioned it a little bit already here, but you have, and I don't know the extent of it, but you have some background in design. And, and even it sounds like that kind of your parents were you know, involved in that in some capacity as well. Um, so it's not surprising, even looking at the, the small details of your Instagram posts. Like I like, you know, if you have an orange card, um, like a 71 Kentucky Colonel's card, you'll have like an orange piece of cardstock or construction paper behind it. So it's just That's the right. little things that stood out to me, like, you know, wow, that it's very simple, but it makes a huge difference and, and, uh, it goes a long way. So, um, if you don't mind though, tell us a little bit more about how your profession impacts your overall philosophy of collecting or, or if it has anything to do with how you collect today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I've been a graphic designer or a user experience designer by, by trade for years at this point. And even before I became a graphic designer, I was always just sort of a visually inclined person. My parents were um, clothing designers and I've always just sort of been around a lot of uh, creatives in my life. And um, I think that's what got me particularly inspired about these 1970s cards. It's just like the absurd typography and like the um, just, you know, saturated colors and the really crazy layouts and the little illustrations and details within the cards. Um, and, you know, whenever I assemble a collection, I feel like the presentation is just as important as the content of the cards themselves. I wanted to be able to really like supplement the cards and bring them to life so that that's why, for instance, in my Instagram account, I appreciate you calling out some of those details. I was really trying to, you know, match the vibrancy of the cards with the backgrounds themselves and make sure things are edited nice and clean. So you talked about design and how you went back to the 70s and those designs appealed to you. You know, at the same time, I hear everyone talking about the 90s cards and how, you know, those designs were so revolutionary and wild and there's some based on Warhol and like all these other things. Um, so it, it's still interesting that you went back to that 70s style. And I appreciate that, uh, you know, people in design backgrounds are still going to have different tastes. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no uh, one size fits all for design tastes. But um, I think I always just kept coming back to the 70s era, not just because of the design of the cards themselves, but also the absurdist fashion. It just feels like an entirely different world. And uh, somebody who grew up in the 90s, it feels so abstract to me that all I have is these sort of 
legends and stories to to base it off of. So that's right. what we're trying to work with. Okay, so this segues us into something then that I really wanted to talk about. Um, I've mentioned it a little bit already, but you made a blowout thread this past weekend. I don't think it got the attention it deserved. Uh, well, you know, I suppose it still can because it's obviously still there and I hope it does. But um, it's titled My Pandemic Hobby, Building a Pre-1990 Basketball Card Typeset. Um, and I'll tell you what, this was something I didn't realize how much I needed this in my life. And I, I guess I guess typesets have been a thing. People talked about it in your thread as being something out there for coins. I wasn't really familiar with that concept. So if you could, can you explain first off before we get into what you did here, what is a typeset? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to your point that the parallel is within coin collecting. And before I was ever a basketball card collector, my very first collecting hobby was coin collecting that I, I, I worked on as a hobby with my uh, dad as a really young kid. And I remember my favorite binder of coins was my so-called US type typeset. Um, and it was basically uh, a binder that included one representational coin from each different type of coin that had been minted throughout the history of US coins. Um, so there would be, you know, the, the vintage designs for pennies and the newer designs for pennies and quarters and even like two cent coins and some things that we've gotten rid of uh, years ago at this point. Um, and I was curious, I was like, is there an equivalent for basketball cards? Is there a basketball card typeset? And I did some Googling around. I found some sort of equivalents in the baseball collecting world, but mm -hmm. um, I did not find anything for basketball cards. Yeah, we're, we're uh, slow to catch on when it comes to basketball. <laughs> baseball guys have got a lot of stuff figured out. They got a head start on us. They, they really did. Yeah. Take everyone through this thing from start to finish, all the way from the inspiration to the final product. Yeah, absolutely. So the inspiration came as I was collecting these 1970s cards and you know, as I started to build out this account, seeing the differences between the designs over the years was really interesting to me and how design sort of uh, evolved over, over the years. You can really pick, on, pick up on these macro trends of, of design aesthetics. And I was like, I wonder what cards looked like even before then, you know, I had, I had access to a couple of the original Bowman sets and Fleer sets, but I hadn't really done a lot of digging into pre-1970s cards. So I started doing my eBay searches and um, picking up a couple individual cards that I thought were really cool. And I was like, God, I wonder if I can build out this, this typeset, just like my favorite coin collecting album, you know? And uh, since nothing like that existed out there, I was like, I need to, I need to do it myself. I need to, uh, you know, dust off my design skills and see if I can piece this together. So um, I did a little bit of Googling around and thinking about how do I mount cards of different sizes in a way that actually looks good because some of these cards are smaller than a postage stamp and then you have these like jumbo tall boy tops cards that are, you know, bigger than index cards and, and the sports caster cards from the late 70s that are gigantic and I needed something that fit all of these cards uh, snugly um, and you know, I was like, oh, maybe I can just mount them with little photo corners like you would in a scrapbook. Mm -hmm. But if I mounted them to a solid color, then I realized, okay, you're not going to be able to see the backs of the cars. And that's where a lot of the coolest information is. So I, I figured, okay, I can actually cut out custom little windows that are, um, you know, about the size of the card, a little bit smaller. And that way you can see the back of the card, see the front of the card. 
and I just mount them on the cardstock with um, these little like acid-free photo uh, mounting corners. And slowly but surely through lots of, you know, setting eBay notifications and uh, piecing together one card at a time, I was able to build this pretty cohesive so-called typeset of basketball cards, starting with the very first uh, you know, basketball card ever made, which is given credit to the 1910 Murad set, um, Murad cigarettes, and then all the way up through what I just, where I decided to end was right at 1990. So I, I end the set through the, the late 80s, because at that point, cards just proliferated way too much. There was a thousand different sets every year. It kind of got out of hand. And by that point, I was alive and honestly remember collecting a lot of these cards. So there was less mystery to it, uh, to me. And um, the way that I was able to find all these sets was through these awesome online resources. You have like the trading card database, you have pre-war cards, um, you have, of course, Beckett and, um, you know, blogs, et cetera. And uh, bit by bit, I was able to find sort of a comprehensive list of all the sets that existed and sort of set my own boundaries around what I wanted to include and exclude from the set. So right off the bat, I was like, okay, there's way too many team specific sets. Mm -hmm. Got to cut those. They're way too regional. They're hard to find. So let's, let's ax those and set a couple other boundaries around the size of what I considered a card and stuff like that. Um, and so in all together, I think there's about 65 cards that met the parameters of what I defined uh, in basketball card history. And then on top of that, I think I did end up adding probably another 30 or so into the binder of cards that I just loved that were maybe international cards that uh, were a little bit outside of what I was initially scoping for, but they were just really cool as well. Yeah, you said you added the the uh, Globetrotter set in there. Was it the 71 yeah. set? Yeah, yeah, I have I have a card from the uh, Coco Puffs uh, set, the, the Globetrotters 1971 uh, set that they did with Fleer. Um, there's also a couple, um, there's like the Phoenix candy box ones mm -hmm. and really kind of niche obscure ones in there as well. But those are fun to collect. Yeah. One, one thing that I've found and, and I have, I guess I've done this informally, which is why I'm just like floored by this is I don't, I've never had a way, like I've literally got cards on my desk. I've never had a way that I could organize what I was wanting to do here. And it's, yeah. I feel like you you did that. And I'm like, this has unlocked a whole new world of this area of the hobby for me. So um, when I've gotten some of this stuff in the mail, like I got one of the the Phoenix Suns milk cartons in recently. Nice, and it's, nice. it's just the, the size of some of this stuff. Like some stuff I get in, like the Jack in the Box cards from 68 are tiny and they're paper thin. Yeah. You know, you see them online and you really have no idea on scale or you know, what they might look like. Is there, did you kind of run into that as well? Totally. I think that the smallest card I came across was the um, Topps Magic Photo card from 1948, yes. which yeah. is one of my absolute favorites. It's the self-developing card. So it would arrive as a blank and then you expose it to the sun and an image slowly shows up on it. And they're less than an inch wide. I mean, it, it looks like something that could just like slip between the cracks and get lost. So I had to figure out how to mount that. And then like, <laughs> to your point, this wide variety of sizes in between. Yeah. And I, I have one of those slabbed and uh, oh, it's nice. kind of, yeah, it's kind of tricky because it's one of those cards where the slab just kind of eats it up, you know, because <laughs> it's just so small. Mostly um, blank plastic. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I, I like also about this project is that someone can really personalize it to their own taste. So like if I built this binder, there would be after 1971, there'd be, be just tons of pacers in there because yeah. I, I think I could use it to, 
um, help narrate the history of cards and then narrate the history of the hobby at the same time. And that's just bringing all these things together that um, I love. So I just really love the idea. Now, I know you posted links to all the supplies or a lot of the supplies you used in the thread itself on Blowout. Yeah. Um, not counting the cost of the cards, because that that's something that'll take years to kind of accumulate those probably, although it sounds right. like you you put that on a rapid course. Um, so not counting the cost and then the time that it took to make. Do you have a rough outline of how much this book cost to just piece together or just to build? Yeah, it was really inexpensive. I think it came out to maybe 50 bucks of material cost, if that. And um, everything's archival quality. I wanted to make sure that, you know, none of the cards are getting yellowed from acidic cardboard or anything like that. And um, it's holding up great. So you you definitely have me. Um, I'm probably going to go on Amazon this afternoon and, and start trying to piece together <laughs> something similar here. Um, so now let's say I, I do decide to go that route, which like I said, I think is going to happen. Uh, although I don't have the design background, I'm a little scared on how it, it, it's going to look kind of rough, I think, in some parts, but I'm going to do my best here. Um, I have your experience to lean on. If you had to do it all again, is there anything you would do different about it? Even if it's, you know, maybe you chose a different size binder or anything you would do different? Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I had a hard time finding an appropriately sized binder. I didn't want a full size um, you know, nine sleeve binder. I uh, wanted something that felt a little bit more personal. So you could, in some cases, only have one or two cards on a page and really sit mm -hmm. with them and appreciate the details. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm really happy with how it came out overall. I, it took me a while to figure out how to cut the windows at the appropriate size. Because mm -hmm. if you cut the window at the exact size of the card, it just falls through. So you right. need something to be able to mount it on. So in each case, I had to cut the window for the card about an eighth of an inch on each side smaller than the card itself so that it had something to actually mount the card on and you could see the back without too much getting blocked so that was one of the the trickier sort of engineering problems to solve for um and also pulling together blurbs for each of the cards so i have a little mm -hmm. stickers that gives a little bit of context for each of the cards in the binder and some sets are just almost impossible to track down, track down any information. Like they're not graded by PSA or Beckett and they're just too niche. And uh, so you're kind of left to little snippets from blogs here and there or, or little comments on forums. Um, so those were tricky to piece together, but eventually I was able to get at least some uh, relevant information about each of the sets to, to give it a little bit of history and color. I might have to lean on you a little bit if you still have that. Might have to I use that. that. <laughs> All right, I I'll might send have you the to labels. use that. Um, yeah. and, and I have a little experience with the photo corners and, and maybe some listeners will as well from my autographing days, because we used to mount, you know, if a guy would sign five or six cards, we would mount five or six cards in a binder page and just show him the page so he could sign them easily. And some guys mm -hmm. were more than willing to do that. You know, we knew people had their limits. So if they only signed one, I'm not going to give them a whole page, but, um, some guys loved, actually loved signing. So. Uh, we would post the use using those uh, photo corners. So maybe I have, uh, maybe I still have some of those. I'll have to look. But anyway, uh, Nick, I, I'm really excited about looking at your project. I'm excited about what could be if I choose to do this project as well. I've really enjoyed talking with you today. We have some similar interests here, but um, I feel like even this short conversation has prompted me to approach collecting from yet another angle. And that's part of what I love about the hobby and, and chatting with the people that partake in it. Before I let you go, um, 
feel free to plug anything that you're working on or anything that you're looking for. Go ahead and give us your social media handles if you'd like. The next few moments are yours. Sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, so my Instagram account is at basketballers, and that's B-A-W-L-E-R-S, like crying. And um, that's that's my only uh, social media plug I'm going to give. And um, I would just say a project that I'm really looking forward to next is something related to NBA at 75. So we have the 75th anniversary of the NBA coming up this season. And uh, just like in the late 90s, how they did NBA at 50 and call that the 50 greatest players of all time, I want to piece together a collection that relates to the NBA at 75 list. So that's coming up next for me. Okay, so well, I'm definitely going to have to have you on again, because I know I'm going to want to talk about that. I've already had the 75 in my mind and what I want to do for that. So we're on the same page there. Thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, there you have it. I want to thank Nick again for coming on the show. And truth be told, you know what? I really like working with designers. Um, Whenever I go to chat with them, they have all the technology. They know how to use it. Everything you ask of them, they've got ready. You know, there's, there's no having to explain everything. Then they plan things out. They take notes. Everything they do is typically well thought out. Um, This was the first time I had really interacted with Nick. He checked all of those boxes, and it was a real pleasure to chat with him this week. And then after we finished our recording, I just kind of casually mentioned to him that I'd love to see a video of his creation because he he gave us some good pictures on the blowout thread, but I wanted to see video. I wanted to see it kind of in action. And it wasn't too long after that that I had a video file in my inbox And he gave me permission to share that with you via my YouTube channel. So that's uploaded and ready right now. If that conversation was something that interested you, I encourage you to hop on my channel and check that out for yourself. Additionally, if you have any thoughts about what we talked about today or if there's something that was said that resonated with you, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Podcast. You can find me on Twitter under at WaxMuseumPC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.